0: I invite you to take a Bible, and I want to look at two brief passages of Scripture, first from the Gospel of Luke. If you wouldn't mind taking a Bible, I'd encourage you to do so and turn it to Luke chapter 1. In just a few moments, I plan to tell you about Luke, the author. Uh, He wrote two volumes of one work, the Gospel of Luke, which we're going to read the opening verses of. And then we're going to look at the second volume of that same work, which is the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the opening verses of that as well. So here in Luke chapter 1, I'd like to read the first four verses of Luke's Gospel. Hear God's word. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." Now after that abrupt ending, look with me over at the book of Acts if you'll go a little bit further into the New Testament and you'll come to uh, the book of Acts chapter 1. And as I mentioned, it's the second volume of the same work and now he gives the purpose for this this writing. Hear God's word from verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That ends the uh, reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Let me pray for us before we look at this closer. Oh God, we, we pray you'd help us to understand why you've left us here in these lives. Some of our friends have only lived to be teenagers, some only children. Uh, Some have lived many years, like our brother here, turning 90 today, and uh, we often don't know exactly why you've placed us here for the time you have. So we pray that as we look into this, your word that's true, that you'd help each of us to understand your purpose for our lives. In Christ's name, amen. What would a CPA and a football team, and a mountain climber, and an astronaut all have in common. Well, what they have in common is if they are not prepared, they will all fail. If a mountain climber does not know how to repel, he or she will not succeed. If an astronaut does not know how to function in a weightless environment, failure. If a CPA does not know the tax code, someone's in trouble. And if a football team cannot block the zone blitz, they will lose. Preparation. Preparation. You have to be well prepared to accomplish a mission. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, although you may have questions, I know precisely what your purpose is in life. I know why God has left you here. I know why you exist. Sometimes people will go through tragedies or near death experiences like a car accident or a near car accident, and then they realize, I have a fresh awareness. I know now God has left me here for a purpose. He's left me here for a reason. And we agree. Yes, He does have a purpose for you, and He had a purpose for you, the same one before you had that car accident or that event. You just were awakened. Through the accident to know what it is. Well, here is God's purpose for you. If you name the name of Christ, God has left you here to be an ambassador for Him. To be an ambassador for the gospel, for the kingdom, to be royal representatives. So we are all ambassadors for Christ. We're followers of Christ. If we trust in Him, if we claim to be Christians. But the question is not, are we ambassadors? But what kind of ambassadors are we? How effective are we about that? I was told about a a couple, uh, two neighbors down in Florida and uh, one one neighbor, they lived right next door to each other, one family was church going family, I assume they were Christians, I don't know but they were very into their church the other neighbors were not, were not interested, would not even profess to be Christians and these neighbors invited them and according to them we appreciated it at first, we moved there they gave us some books, they gave us some things to listen to they invited us to church, we weren't interested in fact on Sunday mornings it, it kind of got to be almost a a painful joke, we would be in our yard working on Sunday mornings. They would load up in their car, and they'd head to church and look at us, and they said, we got tired of the, the drive-by shamings. <laughs> and so uh, then the non-Christian went on to say, you know, in fact, the other day a, a letter came from their, that family's attorney telling us that the tree on our property is crossing their property line, and if we don't take action, then the attorney is going to be in touch with us. He said all they had to do was come and ask us. We would have cut it down we 're all ambassadors, what kind of ambassadors are we? The question is not uh, whether we 're ambassadors, but are we good at it and you may look and say hey i don't, i don't i don 't feel like an ambassador uh, there 's hope for you this morning there 's hope for all of us here. Let me tell you a little bit about Luke. Let me tell you a little bit about the the, the book uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts because I think you 'll find comfort and reassurance from this. If you know about luke, he was uh, he was a physician. He was from an area called Antioch. That's where the Christians, followers of Christ, which was called the Way at that time, they were first called Christians in Antioch. He was not one of the original disciples. Uh, he came to believe in Christ as the Messiah uh, through the Apostle Paul, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He, he accompanied Paul a lot on Paul's travels. He was probably there when Paul was executed. Uh, or he was nearby he was highly educated those who know these things tell us that the greek language that luke used when he wrote the gospel of luke and when he wrote the, the book of acts given the grammar given the the vocabulary is very sophisticated reflecting that the author was very well educated and very cultured so that was true of him But we can gain assurance from the method he used in his writing. Now why I wanted you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, and I hope that you will so again right now for just a moment, is to see how meticulous his method was in writing these accounts. As he writes to this man, Theophilus, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, Luke's saying there are many that have tried to write down what happened with the birth and life and resurrection and death, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he says, Many have undertaken to do that. And he says, Just as they were handed down to us, those events were passed down to them, Luke was not an eyewitness. He was not a primary source in that sense, but he had to write what was told him by others who were there. They were the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. And he goes on and says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything. He scrutinized. He was like a reporter. He asked the right questions. He was motivated to get the truth. And so when he asked these eyewitnesses, he was very careful in making sure that he was putting certainty with what was written down. And he said, It seemed good also to me, in addition to the others, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, now note this last verse, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. God wants you and me to be certain about his word. If you're going to die for something, or if you're going to stand for something in a culture that's moving completely in the opposite away away from it, you better know the truth with certainty, not guess at it, not say, well I've heard that it was said, or my parents said this, or my preacher or my youth director said this, you better know with certainty. If we're going to be ambassadors and we're going to witness for Christ and be effective in that role then we need the testimony and the writings of someone who was there that tells us the truth Someone who saw Jesus crucified. Someone who saw him raised from the dead. And none of us saw that. We were not there. We want this. So what Luke did, he went back to the primary sources. In fact, I love the Gospel of Luke. And I love to read the birth account with the angel appearing to Mary. And then as Mary describes all that took place with, with the birth of Jesus, you come to the end of that chapter and you find this verse, and Mary pondered all these things in her heart. Why is that verse there? It's not in the other Gospels. It's because from my understanding, Mary was Luke's primary source. He is sitting there, he is interviewing her now after all the events took place, and he says, tell me what happened. And so he's writing down that this happened and this happened, and that she and Joseph went to Bethlehem, and then this and all that. And then, as he watched her reaction, he wrote. And Mary pondered all these things in her heart. You can be certain this is not fairy tale. This is not once upon a time in a faraway city. There lived a great king, or a faraway land, and there was such and such. These are names, dates, places. Who was the king at that time? Who was the emperor at that time? Who's this? It's very specific. So you should be comforted by that then he also we can gain assurance from his message look now back at acts chapter one as i mentioned these are two volumes of one work scrolls in that day i understand really couldn't be longer than 36 feet long so they would begin here and as they would write by the time you hit 36 feet you pretty much had to stop so he never intended for the gospel of luke to be the only part of the writing it was the first part that scroll came to an end but there was a purpose for that part. Listen to verse 1 again. He said, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. You get it? In my first work, in the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all Jesus began to teach until he was taken up to heaven. Therefore, now, he's going to write about what happened after he was taken up to heaven. That's the theme or the message of the next of this volume. Now, what's it called? In these pew Bibles, and I'm using one of these New Internationals, it just says Acts. Some of you have a personal Bible. What else is it called? Acts of what? Acts of the Apostles. Some say, well, it really ought to be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, with the help of John Stott, as I thought about this this week, here's... The suggestion of what it should be called because what we have is after Jesus was taken up, it just wasn't, wasn't the Holy Spirit and the apostles down here working, it's Christ working through them. So I would suggest this title. The Acts of the Resurre- Resurrected Christ Executed Through the Power of the Holy Spirit Through the Agency of His Church. Page 2. <laughs> now, how many of you would buy a book in Barnes & Noble if it had a title that long? But that's what we have. We have the beginning of this, as we read a moment ago, with the disciples standing there. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The angels say, uh, what are you standing here for? And essentially, you've got work to do. Move out. And so they're acting on something from this point on, which has already happened. And that is that Jesus now will still continue to work, but he's going to do it from the right hand of the Father. Now, no other religion can claim that. If you're a Mormon here this morning... Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism, dead and in the grave. There, no one, I've never heard a Mormon say, or read where a Mormon says, Joseph Smith is still alive and at work in the world today. I've never heard a Muslim say, and I've never read that they have said, the prophet Muhammad is still alive and at work today. Christianity, one of its uniquenesses, is as we say Christ, yes, he is ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he is still in the world and at work today. And that's what the book of Acts is going to describe for us, what Luke is telling us. Okay, we are his ambassadors, and that's how he works. He's at work through people like you and me and all who trust him. Well, just a few uh, highlights from this opening section of the book of Acts, and I'm not beginning a study of the whole book of Acts today. But first of all, successful mission, if you and I succeed in what Christ has given us in this Commission to be his witnesses, then it depends on our training and our education. Now, these guys had been with Jesus the better part of three years. We know that Jesus had a public ministry that was about three years long. He did not formally call these 12 to be with him as his formal disciples until he was a year into it. But they were not strangers to him, they had probably been listening to him and heard his teaching perhaps the better part of the three years. So I'll just use a round figure for the better part of three years. They had been with him. But as we know from the Gospels, much of the time they were confused and clueless. Jesus would teach something uh, like trust in God, and he did this miracle how God could provide by multiplying these loaves and fish. Then he puts them in a boat Right after they've seen this wonderful visual aid to God's provision, they get out and the waves come and they all fear for their lives. And you see that over and over, that there seems to be a disconnect between what Jesus was teaching and how they responded. You know, they see the blind man and they say, rather than seeing him as Christ saw him, they ask, was it this man that sinned or his parents? And Christ rebukes them. They argue about... When Christ is on the, uh, the, the throne, which one will sit on one side of him and which will s- sit on the other? Who is the greatest among them? Uh, even toward the end, we find Peter, who was the most outspoken, saying he would never deny Jesus. And then, of course, on the night Christ was arrested, he did. And so often they were they were just kind of clueless as to what was going on. But now all of that's going to change. And you know when it's going to change? It's going to change in the 40 days after the resurrection, before the ascension. Let me explain what I think is one of the most overlooked things by us today in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and spoke about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, Jesus teaches these men. He is preparing these men. What does he teach them about? It says the kingdom of God. We often think, don't you think? Let me just ask you. Don't answer out loud, but do, do you think about that his resurrection, that Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples from his resurrection until his ascension, or the better part of it, most each day, we tend to think, well, you know, after the resurrection, Jesus showed up. We know he showed up in the upper room, proved to them he was alive, and then the next thing they knew, he was ascended into heaven. No, we're missing, we're missing about six weeks of important training. He met with them again and again and again, and he was training them, and he was teaching them, and he was teaching them the scriptures. Here's an example. Don't turn there, but let me read it to you from Luke chapter 24. This is after Christ was resurrected from the grave. It begins on the road to Emmaus. He appears to these disciples, and he says, after he's speaking to them, as he's talking to them, it says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now, what was he teaching them? Moses, prophets, Psalms, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, prophets, all of that. He was was explaining to them why. Because of the mission they were getting ready to undertake. Forty days he fills their minds with theology and Bible survey and Bible truth and ministry skills. Why does he do this? When you're hanging upside down on a cross, when you're being murdered, and that's what happened to most of these men, when you're being murdered for what you believe, you better know the God you're dying for. And you better understand. And if you don't, here's what will happen. When that classmate of yours says, when you speak to them about Christ and the need maybe for them to believe in Christ, and they say why, and they begin really to press you, if you don't really know why, you will fold that co-worker in the office, that relative that you may only see a few times a year, you better know what you believe and why you believe it. And you better know Christ personally and truly. Do you know why I think most Christians don't witness? And I'm not making, I'm not the one concluding most. I'm just going off what those who study these things seem to say and from what I observe. Is it because we're all a bunch of cowards? Ah, Maybe. I don't think that's it. Is it because we're nonchalant about the eternal destinies of other people we really could care less? I really don't think that's it either. I think most don't witness because most don't know God. They don't have a vibrant relationship with Him. They are not have a passionate r- relationship with Him. I do not know anyone who is passionate about something who doesn't talk about it. In fact, I'm amazed how quick someone who's really into sports or their football team their college team or some award they just got or maybe their child got or something like that or some big promotion or or whatever some house they're building or refurbishing or something you can sit down and it's brought up in the conversation almost before you say hello we don't talk about things that we're not passionate about but we do talk about things we care about and we're passionate about i think Often, we don't talk about Christ because we don't have a passionate relationship with him. We don't have a growing, vibrant relationship with him. So the answer in being an effective witness is to get to know him in all his glory and majesty. I want to tell you something. I've been here many years I never told you this. I know Bill Clinton. And here's how I know Bill Clinton. I mean, it wasn't because of all in the newspapers and him being president. I have a personal relationship with Bill Clinton. Here's how it happened. Uh, Years ago, I was on the campus of the University of Arkansas, and I was in the student center, very nice building there at that time. I guess it's still there. And I walked up to use a payphone. I just dated this illustration, right? I walk up to use a payphone, and there's a man standing in front of me. He's on the phone. And he turns around. I'm about three feet behind him. He turns around. It's Bill Clinton. At that time, he was the governor of the state. And so we made eye contact. I looked at him and, and nodded, and he looked at me and turned back around. Because he saw that he had been uh, recognized and his security guys were off to the side. Now, so I, I would say I've got a personal relationship with Bill Clinton. I, I I met him in that sense. Now, if you were to ask me any questions about him, what, what do I know about him? How's he act? What does he think about this? I don't know. I'd be pretty embarrassed in a hurry. Now, if you try to witness to a friend of yours and be an ambassador and you say, well, I know Jesus. What do you know about him? I don't know. I heard about him. He's son of God. You get to heaven through believing him. I've got this little presentation, and I can tell you. It ends up being embarrassing, and we don't talk about things like that. So the question is not whether you're an ambassador, but what kind of ambassador are you? How do you get to know him? You get to know him through his witnesses. Since we weren't there, we can't go back and be at the birth. We can't be at the raising of Lazarus. We weren't at the cross when he was crucified. We weren't at the in- empty tomb, that first uh, uh,